Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> hey, like Don said, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. Um, fill out that Connect card for us. Drop it at the Welcome Center. We love praying for your family, walking alongside you guys, connecting with you any way that we can. Before we get started, if you have a Bible, you can get it to Luke chapter 2. You can turn your Bible app on, grab a Bible, grab the one that's in the seat underneath uh, in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, and just get ready. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to end up. But before we get there and continue this series, What Child Is This?, uh, a few things that we want to make sure you're aware of in the month of December. The first is tonight, if you are a guest or if you are a member of this church, we want to invite you to come back tonight at 5 o'clock for our annual meeting. Um, at this meeting, uh, you have to be a member to vote on certain things, like the uh, people serving in different capacities. There are some bylaw changes. You can get uh, the slate of people serving and the bylaw changes right at the Welcome Center and check them out like you've been able to the last couple weeks. Um, but come back tonight for that. We're going to take a look back at 2017. You'll get a financial update on our REACH initiative and where we're at budget-wise. And we'll look ahead to 2018 um, and all that God has in store for us as a church family. So make plans to be here at 5 o'clock tonight. Next Sunday, the 17th, at 4 o'clock, so a late afternoon worship gathering, we're going to have a hymn sing. I want to invite you to come in, uh, be here with everybody, and we're going to sing Christmas songs together and just have a night, uh, late afternoon. It's not a night. I keep messing that up. Four o'clock. Uh, so come and enjoy singing Christmas songs with us that evening. And then finally, the following Sunday is Christmas Eve, and this is a unique year. We're excited, but our Christmas Eve services will be our morning services that, uh, that day. So we'll have an 8 o'clock, a 9.30, and 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service, and then we'll be sending some things home with you for that evening so that you as a family can usher in uh, Christmas Eve that night as well. So please make plans to join us these next few weeks. We're excited for what God's doing here at New Hope among us as a church family. Let's pray together, and we will launch into the rest of this series. Father, thank you, because you're good. And God, you're the source of everything good in our lives, and for that we're grateful. As we come this morning, I believe with all my heart that you speak to us through your word. As we open your word and we study it, I pray that it sits heavy on our hearts and on our minds, that we might leave here and walk out of here different than when we arrived. That's only possible because of you. And so we come before you with expectation and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. About 10 years ago, I was in graduate school, and uh, we were very poor, and we lived in married student housing at the university that uh, I was studying at. And uh, that meant that we lived in this, like, raggedy apartment. And I won't tell you too much about the apartment other than our first child was born uh, when we were there, and we wouldn't put him on the floor because it was like this nasty, it was just gross. And so we got out of there as soon as we could. But anyway, grateful for the school, not the apartment. Um, and while we were there, though, we didn't have cable. And so you just, you have to do things to unwind a little bit. And so we had to go to these uh, places, you had to get in the car and drive this place at, uh, where young people, we had to go in and we actually had to pay to rent a video. And then you'd drive home, you'd watch it, and then you had to bring it back. Um, and so we had to do that. Uh, it's different nowadays, but we went and we rented like TV shows so that we could watch them uh, and entertain ourselves when we were just studied out. So one of the shows really fascinated me, and it only ran for like two seasons and probably wasn't that good, but the concept I really loved. The show was called Lie to Me, and the concept behind this TV show was this psychologist or criminal investigator that had developed a scientific method for studying facial expressions. And he was able to sit in a room with a criminal or somebody who was a, a suspect and have a casual conversation with them. And through that conversation, study the look and the expressions on their face, the muscles in their face, the way their face moved around. And through the studying of that facial expression, he could solve the crime. It was unbelievable. And so it fascinated me because 
Uh, if you're like me, you know that when you're in a room with somebody, it's a lot different than when you're just talking to them on the phone. There's something about facial expressions and the look on people's faces that has an impact on us. I'm sure that you have memories of the way somebody looked when you did a certain thing. I love that. I love the way technology is advanced and we can take pictures of everything. So while you were coming in today, we took a bunch of pictures of your faces. Check out some of these real quick. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I got a good facial expression. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh. Like, <laughs> we did not do that to you. But there is something about facial expressions that just impact us big time, right? I, there are certain people, when I'm in a room with them and I see their face, it just has an impact on me. My wife is one of them. Andrew Peterson is a Christian artist, and he wrote a song called uh, My One Safe Place. And he describes beautifully in that song how I feel when I look at my wife. Like, she is my safe place. She's this when Everything else is crazy. When she's in the room with me, that's my safe place. That's where I can go. My kids are very similar. I love the expression on my kids' faces at different seasons of their life. In fact, it's one of my favorite things. Right now, I have a nine-month-old, uh, Noah, and he is at this stage in growing where the look on his face is typically one of bewilderment, like he's learning something new all the time, and I can't get enough of it. It's like a drug, like do something that he hasn't seen before. So we can see that look of like he's learning and the expression on his face. Uh, when my kids, as they grow up, uh, my son Caleb, who's my oldest now, he's nine years old, and I love... Um, telling him to do certain things. One of the things I've said to him since he was really young, I consistently say, hey, hey buddy, where's your game face? Put your game face on. And this is what he would do. This is him at a very young age, right? I love this picture. That's not how he looks now. He's nine years old now. But this is one of my favorite pictures because when he was a little boy, I'd say, put your game face on. And very seriously and competitively, he would put his game face on. I love it. My daughter, who's eight now, when she was younger, I would tell her to do facial expressions and take pictures of them. So here's a few of the ones I had her do. It's harder to see this picture, but it's all I've got. Uh, so I would tell her, hey, do a happy face, do a confused face, do an angry face. And she would make all these awesome faces, and I would take pictures of them. And I love it. I love that I can look at their face, and I can see what they're learning. And I can see how they're developing and who they're becoming. I can see what they want. I can see where they're headed and what's going on in their life. I love looking at their faces and learning from the expressions on their faces. Here's why I think this is important, because since the beginning of time, people have wondered about and tried to describe what God looks like. I mean, throughout all of time, we have been fascinated with it, because we know it's different than just a voice in the room. Before the services today, we circle up and we pray together, and one of the people in the circle praying this morning said, hey, God, I'm grateful for technology right now because my kids are on the other side of the world, but there's FaceTime which is so much better than just a phone call. I can look at them and see them. And you see, we understand that. And so we've always tried to, throughout history, you can study history, and people have tried to describe God. God has been described as a golden calf, a violent wind, an angry volcano, right? He wears wings, he breathes fire, he eats infants, he demands penance, right? He's fancied, we have, throughout history, fancied God as a ferocious, magical, fickle, and maniacal being, a God to be avoided, dreaded, and appeased. But the one thing throughout history, if you study it, that nobody thought would happen is that God would appear and he would look like a baby. That when God showed up, he would come in the form of a human being. It's a lot simpler than we imagined up until this moment, this Christmas morning. But this is what the Bible says. John, in his gospel, describes it this way. He says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became not a whirlwind or devouring fire, but a single cell, a 
fertilized egg and embryo, a baby. Right? Placenta nourished him, an amniotic sac surrounded him. He grew to the size of a fist. His tiny heart developed and separated into separate chambers. God became flesh. And what we learn at Christmas is that God entered our world not like a human, but as a human. Not like a human, but as a human. And so this crying face of this baby changed the very course of history. And understanding what God becoming man is all about, that we looked at God, we looked at Jesus being God, and now today we're going to look at Jesus being man and what that means for your life. We're going to study that out of Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And we're going to learn this is for the purpose of taxes. They want to gauge how much taxes to, to put on, uh, to really toll the people. And so my question is, why does Luke include this little detail? In those days, Caesar Augustus, so he's doing two things. The first is he's actually placing the birth of Jesus on the historical timeline. Caesar Augustus really existed, he really lived, and he wants us to know that Jesus was actually born. Even atheist historians agree that this historical thing of Jesus being born, they don't agree that with us on how he was born, but the fact that he was born is not debated. He was born, it's on the historical timeline. That's what Luke is doing at this moment. But there's more to it. This is Caesar Augustus. Prior to being Caesar, his name was Octavian. If you know your history, Octavian was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar made famous by... Thank you. Shakespeare. We got one out of however many. It's okay. Uh, but Shakespeare, right? Julius Caesar had a reign of terror, of difficulty, of violence, of betrayal. Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Well, after Julius Caesar is killed, Octavian takes the throne. In around 29 BC, the Roman Senate actually recognizes him as Caesar. So now he is the Caesar over all. He is Caesar Augustus. And his reign as Caesar was one marked with peace. Meaning he came in after a very uh, violent reign and came in and ushered in a season of peace. People were getting along, everything was organized, everything was good, it was a season of peace. And so I think what Luke's doing is he's actually using Caesar Augustus as an unknowing agent of God. I don't think Augustus knew this. But what he's saying is the reign of the king of peace ushered in the birth of the real prince of peace. You see, the one who we thought brought about peace was just a foreshadowing of the one who really came to bring peace. See, these small little nuggets of truth in history become really big elements of grace. They become big stories of grace in our life. The smallest details of your life God can use to bring about big stories of grace. Think about Mary and Joseph. We're about to learn here in the next couple verses that they have to take off and they have to go on a journey. They have to go back to the hometown of Joseph's people. It's about a 70-mile journey. In those days, that's a long journey with an eight-and-a-half, nine-month pregnant wife. I don't know if you know this, but when your wife is eight-and-a-half or nine months pregnant, she's not eager to go on a hike. But they have to go on this trip. I think there's probably thousands of things that they would have rather done than go on this trip. Like of all the things, of all the times you issued this decree for us to go now, why in the world would you go now? And the, one of the first lessons we learn about Christmas is this. God is always at work in the details. Always. He's always working in the details of your life. You don't always see him like that stack of cards, the, the deck of cards that Don was referencing. You can't see it all. He sees it all. He's always working through the details to bring about different things. I don't think Mary and Joseph had any idea how significant this would be, but it took the decree of a, a Caesar 
who was trying to gauge taxes. It's the only thing that was going to get these two parents where they needed to be, when they needed to be, so that the child could be born where and when he needed to be born. See, God's always working through the details. The smallest things in your life that you think aren't significant, he'll use. doesn't mean he creates the pain and frustration, but every time he'll use it to bring about good and purpose. When I was a sophomore in college, my mom's health began to fade. Now, many of you know parts of my story. I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in high school. And I went to Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I did not want to be there. When I first got to Bible College, it was the last place I wanted to be because I had just become a Christian. I didn't want to be around these corny, frustrating Christians. But I was there, and I was on this campus. Over the course of that two years, God changed my heart drastically, and I developed some of the best friends I've ever had on that campus over two years. Then my mom went into the hospital. Now, the reason she went to the hospital, there was a series of really poor choices on her part that made her health take a fade. And so she's in the hospital, and this thought hit me. I remember it like it was yesterday. I don't want her dying without Jesus. So I thought the best thing I can do is to go home. So I left after my sophomore year, and I transferred to Florida Christian College so that on the weekends I could get close to her and share the gospel. That journey from Knoxville to Kissimmee, Florida, was a difficult one because I wanted so badly to graduate with my friends. These friends that are still my friends to this day, I wanted desperately to stay there to graduate. And I had no idea what God was doing. All I knew is I feel like I need to do this. I don't want to do this, but I feel like I have to go do this. So I went home, and many of you know, a year and two days before she died, I was able to baptize my mom into Christ. It was great. Then my plans were to go back to Johnson and graduate with my friends. That's what I wanted to do. But God had already orchestrated and worked differently. And at the same time I transferred there, this beautiful girl who's at Anderson University transferred there as well. And our paths crossed on that campus. And I met my wife. And we fell in love. And now years later, because of that journey that I could never have seen this. I've got four awesome children, a beautiful wife, and I now get to pastor this incredible church in a state I never even thought I'd visit. (laughs) No offense. I just was like, Indiana, that's not on my radar, but here we are. All of that because God was working in a way I could never have seen, and the same thing's true for you. When you don't expect it, when you don't see it, he's working and he's moving and he's orchestrating and he's working in the small details. That's what he was doing with Mary and Joseph on that journey, on that trip. They needed to get to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy because the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the Chosen One, needed to be born in that town. And so Caesar Augustus issues a decree. Now, this is an important part of the journey, but the next part is, in my opinion, equally as important. Verse 2 and 3. And four and five, sorry. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone, everyone went to be registered. Nobody was off the hook here, each to his own town. Joseph had to go up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So he had to go to this small town because he was from the lineage and the home, the house of King David that you read about in the Old Testament. And he needed to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, meaning they had to register together because he still fully intended to marry this girl. That's important. Now, there's a lot you can pull from these verses, but here's what I want you to know. On this trip, before this trip, I want you to picture what Joseph went through. Everything's good. He's working as a carpenter. Everything's good. He's working in a small town. Sure, he doesn't have a lot, but he's really striving and working hard to provide. He meets Mary. They get engaged. And that day, that meant you're going to get married. You're together. There was no, it's not like dating with a ring. It's like you're really, 
you know, together. Families are getting to know one another. You're going to get married. But before they get married, an angel visits them in a dream because that's normal. And the angel says to him, hey, um, your wife's going to get pregnant, but it's not like you think. It's going to be kind of supernatural. It's going to be incredible. It's going to usher in the change to the, the entire history of the world. Oh, okay. So then sure enough, she gets pregnant. This young, teenage, poor girl gets pregnant. And he has a choice to make. And the Bible says he even wrestled with it for a moment. Like, do I leave her because she's going to be an outcast? People are not going to understand. They're not going to agree with us. Or do I stay with her? Then we get this beautiful nugget of truth that this decree is issued and he has to go on this trip. And who does he bring with him? Brings Mary. We don't get to learn a lot about Joseph, but we learn this. This was a man whose faith motivated his character. His faith and what God had called him to do motivated his character and integrity. And I've got three sons. And I've been really wrestling here lately in my, my prayer time for my sons and my daughter with this, this idea that I can, I can think about longevity and how long I'm going to live, or I can think about legacy and what I'm really going to leave behind. And when I look at Joseph, I don't think he was thinking longevity as much as legacy. Like, God's called me to do something. I want to be a man of character and integrity. I want to do the right thing. And so I've told this to my kids consistently. A leader always does the right thing. Yeah, but Dad, what about that? A leader always does the right thing over and over and over again. And what you read about Joseph, what little we have about him, we do learn he was a man of integrity character who did the right thing. No matter how hard it was, no matter how much he didn't want to do it, no matter how much he wondered what would happen if he did it, God called him to do something, and he was a man of character and integrity, and he did it. And following through on this leads us to verse 6. He says, now, while they were there, because Joseph did the right thing, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And you know this part of the story. Jesus is born. When they get there, so many people had convened on this town for the census. There was no place left for them to stay. And so they get this little uh, outhouse-ish type thing. It's not quite as bad as we've depicted it because we like to be romanticizing everything. But it's not, it wasn't quite. But it was not staying in, the, in comfort. And he was born in this manger and he was laid down in this manger and the very course of history was changed because a little baby was born. And I love the way Max Lucado, a Christian author, describes it. Here's how he describes that night. He says this, On a starlit night in the company of sheep, cattle, and a bewildered Joseph. I think that's an understatement. Ah, it actually happened, right? Mary's eyes fell upon the face of her firstborn son. She was bone-weary, yeah, surely, in pain, more than likely, ready to rest her head on the straw and sleep for the rest of the night, probably. But first, Mary had to see this face, his face, to wipe the moisture from his mouth and feel the shape of his chin, to be the first human ever to look down and whisper, so this, this is what God looks like. You see, on Christmas, Jesus didn't enter our world like a child. Jesus entered our world as a child. The immortal, never-changing, all-powerful, all-present God of the universe became a dependent, needy, fully human baby. Look, it's important that you understand this is not just a legend, not just some fun story, that this actually happened in a moment in history. Here's why that's important, because look, it, it, it ushered in hope and change for everyone. Why? Because look, if it didn't happen, like if you're saved because you're morally upright, if you're saved because you can... You can muscle through it, that you can get through difficulty because you can just do the right thing. If, if God is all about like, hey, 
All good people should just be saved, right? If you just do good and you just treat people nice, isn't God just going to be there for you? Isn't it just about how good you are? Here's a question that I've asked people who present to me like, yeah, sure, God, Jesus, Christmas, that's fine. But like, you just have to be a good person. Here's the question. If you, if you can be saved simply by being a good person, why did Jesus come? If you can be saved simply by doing the right thing all the time and your morals will get you through and God will not punish you because you're just a morally upright and good person, why did Jesus, why was he born? Why did he live? Why did he have to die and resurrect for you? See, the truth is you're not saved because you're good enough because on your best day, there's still separation between you and God. You're saved by grace. You're saved by, because he did for you what you were powerless to do for yourself, what you were incapable of doing for yourself. And he said, I'm going to do it for you. And this is why the Bible writers, the writers of the Bible wanted to continually remind us, like this actually really happened. This is not just a story. Let us give you some evidence. And so John, the same author we looked at before in 1 John, one of his letters to the churches, he said this. He said, look, we actually saw him. We saw him with our eyes, like he was real. We heard him with our ears. We know his tone of voice. We touched him with our hands. He was really here. He really lived. He really died. He really resurrected. We saw the look on his face, the facial expressions that he made, the face of compassion and love, the face of hope. We saw with our own eyes the face of God. One New Testament scholar says when John writes like this, he's actually doing a court defense. He's actually courtroom type language. He's standing there saying, I'm here to tell you this is real. He was really here. We really watched him live. We actually spent time with him. We really saw him. He was born. We looked at his dead body, and then we looked at his resurrected alive body, and it changed everything. Here's the deal. If Christmas is simply a legend, then your life has no hope. You have a hopeless existence if Christmas is nothing but a legend because you have at best 80, 85, 90 years on this earth, and then what? You get to live out your entire existence in this world and then it's all over and done with. There's no hope in that. And if Christmas is simply another story among many stories, then you have no hope for your life. But the thing is, Christmas is not just another story. It's not a legend. Christmas is a truth. And all truth has implications. All truth has implications on your life. The smallest of truths can have the biggest of impacts. And the smallest of truths coming in the smallest of packages, a baby, the truth that God became man, has implications for your life that are far-reaching. See, yeah, Jesus is God, but Jesus was also fully human. And what does it mean that he was fully human? I'll give you a few things. The Bible teaches us that because God became fully human, here's what it means. It means, first of all, that you can have intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is possible. Here's why that's important, friends. Let me give you a little bit of the, the, the timeline of history. Your Bible, if you were to open it up to the very beginning chapters, the first two chapters of Genesis, it would tell you that God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created the heavens and the earth, he formed this place he called Eden. And in Eden, he had perfect relationship with his people, meaning they had full presence of God. They were around him. They could see him. You think about looking at his facial expression, being in his company, being all around him. And then God, because of his deep love for us, gave us a choice because love requires a choice. You have to be able to choose in order to be able to love. And so God gave choice to man, and man chose wrong. And so now this sin enters the picture, which ushers in death. And instantaneously, there's a separation between God and sin. Because if God is just, 
If he's true, if he's a real God, he must stay true to his character, and he cannot simultaneously be sinful and holy. And so in his holiness, he cannot be around sin. And so now there's this gap, and the rest of your Old Testament begins to describe this gap, like the people would offer sacrifices to try to bridge the gap of intimacy with God. And it would last temporarily, but they could never be fully in his presence. And the people, God would send prophets who would raise up, and you could hear the voice of God through the prophets, but you weren't able to see him because his glory was too powerful for your sin in the Old Testament. If you were ever to be around him in his holiness, it would overcome the sinfulness and destroy you completely. And so you couldn't, to the point where there's even a story in the Old Testament where a guy named Moses goes up on a mountain. He's the leader of God's people at the time, and he wants to see the face of God, and God says, you can't do that. I can't, because it'll undo you. It will kill you. So he gets a glimpse, a Passover, like the shoulder of God, if you will. And he gets just this tiny experience, not even the full seeing God, just this glimmer of God. And he comes down off the mountain and says his face was literally glowing to the point where they had to veil it because the people couldn't stand to look at it. And that was just a sliver. And then throughout the rest of your Old Testament, there's this desire to get back to this Eden, this desire to create this intimacy with God. But sin and this chasm is there and nothing was bridging the gap. And God finally said, You are powerless to recreate intimacy with me, so I'm going to do for you what you are incapable of doing for yourselves. And on Christmas morning, the gap between us and God was bridged. And Jesus was born, and he would live the life that we couldn't live. He would die the death that we deserved to die, and he would overcome death, bridging the gap to intimacy. So now you, because of the resurrection of Jesus... When you are in Christ, you now have intimacy with him. You can come before him. This is why Jesus said in John's gospel, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Meaning, if you've seen Jesus, if you've seen me weep, you've seen the Father weep. If you've seen me work hard, you've seen the Father work hard. If you've seen me in distress, you've seen the Father in distress. If you've seen me angry like he was at the tomb of Lazarus, you've seen the Father angry. If you want to see God, Jesus is saying, you look at me. My question for you is, if you want to see God, will you look at Jesus? Because that's the only way you're going to see him. You see, Jesus becoming fully man meant now you could have intimacy with your Father. Because before that, you were powerless to create that intimacy. So he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Other implications of Jesus becoming man are this. So in addition to creating intimacy, now you don't have to be misunderstood, right? You can be fully understood, meaning this. When Jesus was born, the Bible says he then had to grow. He knows what you feel when you have to grow and learn and mature. And Jesus knows what it's like to feel frustration. Jesus knows what it was like to be tempted. Though he never sinned, he was tempted Jesus knows what it's like to feel betrayal when the person closest to you does something to you to stab you in the back and to hurt you. You're not alone. So many times in life we feel like no one can understand what I'm feeling, like what I'm going through. You might say in your head, like, yeah, I know other people have been through this and they've experienced this, but in your heart you're feeling like no one understands me. No one gets what I'm feeling or going through right now, but because he became man, he knows how you feel. I mean, picture this. He was a carpenter studied under with his dad, Joseph. He knows what it's like to build something, quality, that no one buys. Like, oh, it won't sell. Like, okay, and, and he knows what it's like to build something and have the frustration of it not quite coming together right and having to work extra hard at it. See, Jesus understands what it's like to have your closest friends turn their back on you. And the people you love the most betray you. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected and hated. He also knows what it's like to feel loved and experience joy. See, because he became a man, you can be fully and completely understood. Whatever you're feeling, whatever you've been through, he knows what it's like. And so whatever you're going through, he understands. The last thing is similar to the second thing, and it's this. Because Jesus became man, you're never alone. You never have to be alone. I mean, one of the worst feelings in the world is loneliness. One of the worst experiences that we can have in this life is to feel lonely, but to understand that God never wants to leave you. He wants to be in your presence. And the only way for him to have done that is to have come and do for you what you couldn't create for yourself. You couldn't create. You could not create the ability to be in his presence, so he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And now you can be in his presence, and you're never alone. Picture this. When Jesus... When he, after he resurrected and before he ascended to heaven, he came to his disciples. He gathered them all up and said, hey, now that I, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's how he said it, which to me means this. I'm the boss. Why is he the boss? Begins with R and ends in resurrection. Anyone? No, he resurrected. Okay, like he resurrected from the dead. Like you win. What do you want to say? And he says, I'm, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I want you to go and give your entire life to making disciples telling as many people as you can about the good news of what I did for you that you couldn't do for yourself. Teach them to obey everything that I have taught you. Now go. And as they're going, I imagine Jesus said, oh yeah, one more thing, hold on, before you leave. Matthew 28, verse 20. He says, hey, I want you to know, as you go, and you feel rejection and difficulty and pain and anxiety, and I want you to know this. Every step of the way, I'm with you. And lo and behold, I'm with you every single day step of the way. Every waking moment you have, he's there. Every difficulty, every tragedy that you sit through, he wants to wrap his arms around you. You are never alone. And he said, not only do I want to be with you, he said, but I'm going to leave so I can send my Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So now you are the very home of God walking around. He wants to be intimately connected to you. So he did for you what you could not do for yourself. Now what does this mean? How do we connect to that kind of relationship? Two things, real quick. The first is, like, will you, it's kind of a question, intimately connect to Jesus this Christmas season? It's easy to just go through the motions, to read the Christmas story for the one millionth time. I get it. I know that. I understand. But God has given us this love letter. And he's saying, hey, I want to connect with you, and so I'm going to give you this, and it's my heart for you and for your life. And I want you to read this and intimately connect with me. And here's what I've learned about my reading time in the Bible. Discipline precedes joy. There are seasons where reading this is really hard and distractions come. But like in most areas of your life, discipline precedes the joy of the experience. And so I just have to push through in discipline and continually read it because there's a breakthrough moment where I'm all of a sudden, because of what he is saying to me through his word, fully aware of his presence around me. And so now I begin to look at life through a different lens and I begin to see the facial expressions of the people I love, the smile of my children, the smile of my wife, uh, the laughter of my deep, good, deep friendships. All of these incredible moments now become connections between me and the Father because now I'm grateful because of what he's providing for me. And now the intimacy between me and God is even stronger because now my eyes can see what he's doing all around me because of the intimacy created by time spent in his word. So my question for you is this. Do you want an intimate relationship with the Father? Do you want to see the face of God? Spend time in the Word that He has so freely offered us. The next thing is this. Will you walk confidently in the knowledge that you're fully known? 
right? Will you walk confidently, knowing every day that you are fully known? The deepest desire of the human heart is to be fully known. I want someone to fully know me. I want to be vulnerable. But we put up walls around our heart and difficulty to get through. And a lot of us guys, we do the macho thing and the strong thing and and we just create distance, and there's a lot of fear in some people of being vulnerable, and yet God says, I'll break through all of that with the good news that I became like you, so I want to intimately connect to you, and now you can walk around in the confidence that no matter what else somebody does to you, no matter what else somebody, how somebody treats you, or the things the enemy throws your way, you can have confidence knowing like, hey, even if these people hurt me, I'm fully known by the creator of the universe. He knows everything about me. Let me say it to you this way, because I think some of you need to hear this, because maybe you've gone nose blind to this reality, Christmas tells us that God, the creator, is absolutely, completely, utterly, and totally crazy about you. That he looks at you and he's crazy about you and he loves you and he loves spending time with you and he's excited when he sees the look on your face as you learn new things and you grow the same way I am when I look at my children. God wants to intimately connect you. He wants you to see his face because he knows that changes everything when you know he's just like you. In 1926, George Harley founded a medical mission in uh, the Mano tribe in Liberia. So he went as a missionary. And while he's there and spending time with these people, he builds a medical clinic and a chapel, and nobody shows up. I mean, they came to get medical help, but they wouldn't come to the chapel. For five years he labored. Nobody showed up to the chapel to hear about Jesus. During that five years, right when they got there, actually, they gave birth to their first child, a son named Robert. He grew up right outside the forest, and one day, the wife described, she's sitting there in the kitchen looking out in the clinic, looking out at a field her son is running across, and he trips and falls, and he gets back up, and he keeps running. He trips and falls a second time, but he doesn't get back up this time, and she runs out to see what's going on. She picks up his feverish body, and she says, oh, man, oh, Bobby, don't worry. Your daddy, he knows how to fix this tropical fever. He's going to do everything to make things okay. I mean, this was the apple of their eye. They would write that he was the joy of their life at that time. Dr. Harley tried everything, everything he knew how to do, but nothing helped. And ultimately, their son died. And the parents were completely distraught with grief, like any parent would be. And he got up and uh, went into his shop as a missionary, and praise God for missionaries. He went in, and he built a coffin. And he laid his son's body in it, and he nailed it shut. And he began to walk out and look for a clearing that he could bury his child in. When one of the older men in the village came up and asked him, hey, what's the box all about? And he explained to him, hey, my son died. And he said, hey, I want to help you carry this coffin. And so here's how he describes his experience next. This is Dr. Harley's words. He says, So the man took one end of the coffin, and I took the other. Eventually, we came to a clearing in the forest, and we dug a grave and laid Bobby in it. But when we'd covered up the grave, I just couldn't stand it any longer. I fell down to my knees in the dirt. I began to sob uncontrollably. My beloved son was dead. And there I was in the middle of an African jungle, 8,000 miles from all my friends and family. I felt so utterly alone. But when I started crying, the old man cocked his head to the side in stunned amazement. He squinted his eyes and squatted down next to me and just looked at me like something was wrong. He just stared at me intently for a long time. He just sat there listening to me cry. And then suddenly, 
He leapt to his feet and went running back up the trail through the jungle, screaming again and again all the way up to the village, the white man, the white man, he cries just like one of us. And that evening, as they're in their home, grieving in their cottage, there's a knock at the door. When Dr. Harley opened the door, there was every man, woman, and child from that village standing there, asking them to tell them about Jesus. The next Sunday, they flooded the chapel, and ultimately, he led thousands of people to Christ. You see, they wanted to hear about Jesus, because for them, everything changed when the villagers saw the tears of the missionary. And I'm convinced that for us, everything can change when we see the face of God. When we see that God loved us so much that he became like us, everything changes. Because the birth of a baby, everything changed. The whole course of history was different. Now we could have intimacy with the one who created us, despite our sin. Now we could be understood that whatever we're going through, he understands what we're feeling. And that no matter what the world throws our way, whatever the enemy brings in our path, we know that because he came, that we're never, ever alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christmas. God, I thank you for the truth that you bridged the gap of intimacy that our sin created. That you became like us so that you could have a relationship with us. Father, I'm so grateful that on my dark, painful days of doubt, frustration, anger, and sin, when it wrecks my life, I know that I can come back to the truth that you understand me, that you understand my dark, bad days, and you rejoice in my good, bright days. God, I also thank you that on this journey of life that we're trying to tell people the good news, this difficult mission that you've called us to, you promised every step of the way to be with us. And that because of the Holy Spirit that's in us when we choose Jesus, we can feel your presence all around us. God, as we leave this place, I love the gathering, but I know that when we scatter, the enemy is real. He's going to come our way and try to create doubt. He's going to come our way and make us feel unloved and uncared for. My prayer, Father, is that this truth of Christmas would not be something we're numb to, but something that makes us fully alive. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.